Hello, welcome to the Ponderings Podcast. I'm your host, Milo. In this episode, I'm going to be elaborating on James Hillman's conception of anima mundi. Basically, just go more in depth on what he means when he talks about the soul or psyche or soul making. And I'll be touching upon inactivism and embodied cognitive science in order to explain Hillman's conception of anima mundi and the world's soul. Sort of give it some grounding. Um, You can find this podcast on any podcast hosting site, such as Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, etc. I also post videos on YouTube of the podcast every week on Mondays. So first I want to share a quote from the ancient Greek philosopher Thales. Quote, the whole world is full of gods, unquote. Archetypal psychology takes up this animistic idea that the world itself and its particulars has soul. And by soul, I mean mind, cognition, consciousness, or to put it more simply, aliveness. Nature is alive, and it has varying degrees of aliveness. There is mind in life, and vice versa. So before I get into more psychological or philosophical notions in James Hillman's work, I just want to define this basic idea of nature being alive. And in order to do that, I'm going to go over Evan Thompson's conception of embodied cognition and inactivism in his book, Mind and Life. Um, And I'm going to use that to define his inactivist approach, as well as define animism in its more mythic and religious context to tie all that together um, near the end. So... Yeah, it'll sort of all tie together to give us an idea of what Hillman means by it. The world, soul, anima mundi. All right, so we're going to, well, I'm going to begin talking about Thompson's inactive approach. Um, So bear with me. There's going to be a lot of information, but it's very interesting. If you haven't heard of, like, embodied embodied cognition, to begin, let's uh, define Oh, inaction. So inaction primarily means the action of enacting a law, performing or carrying out an action. An action. (laughs) This approach was first coined by Varela, Roche, and Thompson in their book The Embodied Mind in 1991. Um, Five ideas are laid out to define this inactive approach. So this approach is a biological notion, but also extends to biology's dependency on its immediate Uh, situated environment and vice versa so first living beings are autonomous agents that self-organize and self-maintain themselves this first idea is explicated in the term autopoiesis which was first coined by francisco varela and humberto maturana so autopoiesis basically means self-creating so auto would be like yourself right and then poesis is sort of a creation uh, making self-making for example a cell is able to maintain and organize itself through chemical processes therefore it is autonomous but it is coupled to its environment so because it has a semi-permeable membrane which allows it to pick and choose what it releases and what it receives from its environment it has ways of reproducing And all these things highlight the cell's skillful know-how in its self-organization and its maintenance through interaction with the environment. So again, that first idea 
um, of that first idea to this um, inactive approach has to do with autopoiesis, getting that sort of concept, laying out the what this concept means, autopoiesis. So the second idea is the nervous system self-organizes and maintains itself and is, and is an autonomous dynamic system, meaning it actively organizes and, mainta and maintains its own coherent and meaningful patterns of activity. So it's a circular network of interacting neurons. So here we're thinking bigger than just the cell. We're thinking about the nervous system, which has a centralized or contained structure in that it is able to coordinate the activity of neurons in the body of an organism. So other systems in the body, such as muscles, organs, endocrine system, etc., these would all apply to this sort of second idea where now all these cells are kind of working in conjunction or a sort of um, intentional pattern. It's like a multicellular system that is happening with that has a centralized sort of core um, or a centralized um, coordination going on. So these are all autonomous, but they work in conjunction. They intentionally uh, work with the organism as a whole. So yeah, we have the sort of individual cells uh, self-maintaining, but still coupled to the environment. And then we have cells that sort of work together um, as like muscles, organs, endocrine systems, different systems to create um, a coordination in the body. So the third idea has to do with cognition. It's the skillful know-how of this autonomous agent in its situated and embodied action. So it's even bigger than just the differing systems in the body. Um, this, this third idea is the organism as a whole and its interaction with the environment and how this organism is able to maneuver intentionally. So here, it's not just the separate systems like working on their own, uh, maintaining on their own, but all these systems come together to form a sort of organism. But still, there's all these processes going on, so they're, these aren't separate things in the organism. They're made up of very complex processes, um, going from simple processes of just like a cell or just like molecules uh, going in and out of cells or things like that, or from the environment, um, you know, passing through skin and things like that. And then there's more complex um, systems like the skin, muscles, uh, nervous system. And then there's even more complexity when all these systems sort of work in conjunction to coordinate activity and sort of be a more cohesive whole, which is like the organism. The organism is a more cohesive whole with all these systems. and But it's still dependent on all these systems to work or to function. And it's also dependent on the environment to provide like the different chemical processes and all these things. All right. So fourth, the this organism is, all, is a cognitive being. So even an ant or 
plants are they have a, a level of cognition it might not be as complex as like a human organism but a plant has its own sort of um ability to cognize or sort of coordinate activity even if it's less centralized than like an animal or a human so yeah the cognitive beings world is not a pre-specified external realm that is represented by its brain so here we have the organism the outside or you know the plants um, animals environment that it is in it's not it's not an external realm to the organism it's uh it's actually a relational domain that is enacted or brought forth by the organism's mode of coupling with the environment so as an organism um the environment the way we perceive the environment it's not this external thing but it's something that um the way we perceive it we perceive it as affordances what we're able to do in the environment what we're um how we're able to use or interact with this environment it it's very um interaction based it's very relationally based so a bird would perceive its environment very differently than a human a bird would see things having to do with its own abilities so this would have to do with the organism's ability and also the organism's way of interacting with the environment um the environment that the organism perceives or interacts with is going to be very specific to the organism's abilities like for instance animals or plants even but specifically animals they have different um capabilities with their senses some can smell more than we can or see differently than we can so the environment that they are interacting with is going to be very distinct to their perception or sensory motor capacities but again it's not this like substance um we can't think of it as substances like there's plants there there's animals there there's you know the outside there's me no it's a relational domain that is very interdependent and sort of as i create the environment that i see and affect it as i um as i live and um take and give from it the environment also changes me you know so we have to see it as, as a relational domain instead of this like external realm and then there's me kind of thing So yeah, this idea of this relational domain that's important. Um there are no separate substances out there. Nothing in life is independent. There is no bifurcation or division between mind and body. Mind and body are continuous and they extend into this relational domain. Coupling with the environment which consists of other autonomous systems that are also coupled to the environment and to you. um obviously these couplings aren't happening simultaneously all at the same time it's what you're uh giving attention to it's what you're um it's in the specific environment that you're in but again even if something is far away there's a way that you affect it or touch it just by um affecting your nearby environment that nearby environment will be 
affecting its other nearby environment, and so on and so forth. And so that's the fourth idea, okay. And the fifth idea is that experience is not a side issue or a derivative of life, but rather experience is the central component to understanding mind. Um, this fifth idea highlights the importance of combining phenomenology and cognitive science to have a more in-depth understanding of mind. Phenomenology is the study of direct experience. It's the study of phenomena as it appears to us. So this sort of ties back to Hillman's um, quote, the stick with the image. So, and I'll, and I'll get into that a little more later, but we're, sort of the fifth idea is this. It's the experience is essential component to understanding mind and phenomenology is sort of this way of that we can understand the phenomena or at least express it or talk about it we have to talk about it as it appears to us but again this would only apply to humans um, experience we can't really um, explain the experience of animals or plants or how the environment um, as a whole experiences us, you know, but we can sort of learn from our own experience and study that. So inactivism is very like closely tied to phenomenology and applying phenomenology to cognitive science. Um, the inactivist approach proposes that there is a deep continuity of life and mind, and that autonomy is a fundamental characteristic of biological life specifically. And then we still have to keep in mind that relational domain. It's very relational. Even this autonomy that we um, perceive, this like sort of unity, isn't really... Um, it's made up of very complex systems or... You, it can be broken down further and further, and there's still a lot of relational aspects going on. It's not just like this independent substance by itself. And phenomenology proposes that intentionality is the fundamental characteristic of the lived body. So again, intentionality, us in order to in order to study our direct experience, we have to pay attention or Ha kind of have a focus or an intentional focus on the phenomena or how we experience things or what is being experienced. There is autonomy and intentionality in life, specifically in the organism, in one's subjectively lived body, um, and this life world is going to lead us to that con um, to Hillman's conception of anima mundi which is the world soul. So now we're gonna take the psychological approach now that we've gone over the cognitive science and sort of physiological way of understanding how everything's interconnected and is a part of a relational domain. Um, psychology is the study of the soul, the psyche. So with Thompson's inactivist approach in mind, cognition is embodied and it is also extended. There is no duality of mind and body. It is continuous. Hillman suggests that psychology is in need of soul. So keeping this continuous mind and body 
will help us understand what Hillman means when he's talking about soul. So Hillman, unlike Thompson, suggests that the soul should not be reduced to personal subjectivity and that personalism is a burden on modern psychology. So in cognitive science, there's still a very strong emphasis on physicality and Hillman tries to, well, Hillman specifically, uh, if you're comparing it to cognitive science, he's going to differ because he wants to focus on language and the imaginal realm and myths and how they create our cultures and things like that. So it's a more social science, really, where Hillman is coming from. Okay, so on page 95 of A Blue Fire, Hillman quotes, The soul is not of itself personal. The psyche presents itself in images of persons and in personal feelings, but it is more than personal. Unquote. Carl Jung suggested we observe soul as its own objective psyche rather than a personal psyche. Soul contains its own history and purposes and it, ha- it inhabits its own terrain, its own situated environment. And specifically, Hillman believes that soul has its own reasons, its own intentional- intentionality. So soul isn't like one's personal soul or how there's like this... Uh, division between soul and body or something that's not what hillman is talking about when hillman talks about soul it has more to do with myth or essence it has to do with the soul of a an aspect of yourself or the soul of the dream or the soul of a culture the soul of a of a teaching the soul it's it's a very, it's a more animistic approach than sort of substance or a christian like soul body kind of approach the soul is still very much attached to the environment it also creates its own environment and hillman suggests that there's like a soul making process and he wants to bring back soul to psychology because it feels like it's very um psychology has focused more on physicality or um it's just taking the soul the poetry the art out of the study of mind so now i can actually get into the anima mundi the world soul so in archetypal psychology Um, the world is seen as having its own soul and in need of therapeutic attention. Western civilization has taken the soul out of anything that is not human, basically claiming anything that is other as inanimate. Only the subjective person is able to have and create soul. And obviously Hillman will disagree with this notion and he proposes that everything has soul and it's and they have soul in varying degrees again when we speak of soul according to hillman it is not the christian conception of a soul this thing in itself or inside us but rather soul is more akin to the intentionality and relational domain proposed in the inactivist approach not only do we have subjectivity but the world has its own subjectivity as well in that the world isn't just a projection of our fantasies or perception onto it. Nature is alive with its own intentionality. And 
we can know this by the fact that of autopoiesis that the smallest cells have um or the smallest molecular there's intentionality happening there's intentional movement and um interaction relations going on even at the molecular level but yeah so again nature is alive with its own intentionality soul is an opus a work according to hillman so culture is a perfect example of soul as an opus a work um and culture is defined as the work of soul making the organism's subjective unity interacts and creates itself and its environment as much as the environment creates itself and the organisms in its relations soul does not only encompass this relational domain but also the symbols and metaphors which emerge and are created through our interactions with our situated environment again we go back to the the thales quote from the beginning of this episode the whole world is full of gods so there is imaginative possibility and this imaginative possibility is soul making so i want to sort of go into a little bit of what animism is and i'll probably dedicate a whole episode to animism at some point in the future but here i'm just going to touch on it and sort of give hillman's approach or uh what how he describes animism but okay so currently the western perception of psychic reality is that there is a system of private experiencing subjects and dead public objects animism is a term coined by cultural anthropologists which means that everything such as animals plants rocks rivers weather systems humans even words are animated and alive so instead of the normal western perception where you know there's experiencing subjects and dead public objects animism actually says that everything is alive it's animated so this doesn't mean that um we're going to anthropomorphize rocks or rivers but they have a um degree of aliveness there's a degree of complexity of a sort of consciousness with rivers weather systems there's movement and intentionality happening but they're not dead public objects as um the western perception usually sees it so i think james hillman again he describes this best on his quote on page 99 of a blue fire so quote the world comes with shapes colors atmospheres textures a display of self-presenting forms all things show faces the world not only a coded signature to be read for meaning but a physiognomy to be faced as expressive forms things speak they show the shape they are in they announce themselves bear witness to their presence look here we are they regard us beyond how we may regard them our perspectives what we intend with them and how we dispose of them this imaginative claim on attention bespeaks a world ensouled more our imaginative recognition the childlike act of imagining the world animates the world and returns it to soul unquote. 
So nature calls for us to notice it. It claims our attention, revealing its own face, its own experience. And this requires us to notice the other as its own, as having its own soul, its own experience, which projects back to us, rather than us projecting our own subjectivity towards it. So again, it's not about anthropomorphizing rocks or rivers, but noticing that there's there's aliveness going on even in rocks with molecules that are that make up the rocks or the history behind rocks, how they were how they have built up over time, how rivers have uh, changed over time. They have their own narratives, they have their own stories, um, and this is where myth and all that. Um, plays a part in Hillman's psychology. It's seeing the, you know, rivers, uh, forests, all these um, environments, uh, all these different organisms, seeing them for what they are, and then wit- um, a bearing witness to their presence, to and how they announce themselves, looking at the faces that they show. And we're not reading for hidden messages or meanings, but just facing them for what they are, sticking with the image. Well, I hope that this episode has helped you understand Hillman's conception of world soul. Also, I hope the introduction on an active and embodied cognitive science did not confuse you, but rather made the concept of world soul a bit more grounded. So... That I sort of that's why I used cognitive science um, to ground the concepts of soul, so it's not just this um, spiritual or new agey conception. Hillman isn't speaking of soul as like a interiority or a substance, but it's a more poetic narrative sort of understanding of the face of of the things around us or how. They want us to bear witness. They want us to intentionally pay attention, to interact, to notice. Not only we're not just living in a personal subjective experience, but things around us, the environment, uh, plants, other people, other organisms are alive as well. Other um weather systems all these things are alive and they have faces they have faces for us to witness and for us to notice and for us to sort of listen to their narrative whatever that may be as it appears to us or as it um, interacts with us as it relates to us um yeah pretty cool um yeah hillman's work is very fascinating and it brings again it's it's sort of bringing soul back to just uh the physiology of course learning about physiology and cognitive science is is magical and just beautiful in itself but hillman sort of takes the next step of giving narrative and poetry and myth and acknowledging the importance of myth making and soul making giving soul to these relations and this domain in which we um, inhabit and move but yeah thank you for listening and i hope you stay tuned for the next episode